This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey Blenders, it's Sean, and uh, we do not have a full episode this week. The guys all went on vacation, scattered out. I got away, Gabe's getting away. Jake has been gone, Kevin's been gone, but we wanted to make sure that you guys had some fresh content to end out the year, so we have an exclusive interview with Pete Docter, uh, the director of the new Pixar Disney film, Soul. Hopefully you guys checked out Soul when it was on Disney+. Plus. It dropped on December 25th. We recorded this interview with Pete before the movie came out, but it is spoiler-free. It gets into a lot about his process, and we were so thrilled to have him on the show. He was a terrific guest, and I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this interview. So, without further ado, the real Blend interview with Soul Director Pete Doctor. Hi, Pete. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, terrific. We are so thrilled to be able to have you on the show. Um, th- th- this is my favorite movie of the year. It's the best thing that I've seen so far. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I've been able to see it three times. It's I, I, I just love everything about it. Um, I'm going to start with this one. Uh, just going back over some of the names who you've recruited for your stories, Tina Fey, uh, Amy Poehler, Mindy Kaling, Bill Hader, Billy Crystal. I want to know, what is it about comedians that makes you want to keep working with them to do voice work? Is there something specific about comedians? Well, because they're funny. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> you know, Tina Fey, actually, this is so obvious, but you're like, hey, if you want the movie to be funny, hire funny people. Like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. No, and really that's what we're after, of course, is beyond the movie being funny. Um, you want it to feel spontaneous. And so we look for people that uh, are, are good at improv- improvising and bringing, uh, you know, their own way of saying things, which, of course, um, between Jamie and Tina on this film, we just had a field day. We had so much great material. You know, Pete, one of my favorite aspects to this story uh, is this moment where Jamie Foxx's character tells the story about being a young kid. And when he sees this musician lose himself in the music, it's the moment that triggers the reaction for him to want to become a musician. 
And I, I, I remember asking the cast this at the junket, but I was wondering for you particularly, if you had a moment like that in your life when you were growing up where you saw a scene in a movie or a performance by an actor or something you saw in a, in a film you loved growing up that you think triggered that want to be a storyteller and filmmaker. Well, you know, it, was, it probably was for me, like, uh, you know, I, I grew up pre-home video. And so Saturday morning was cartoon day. <laughs> Every other day of the, the the week, I would sleep and my mom would be like, come on, it's time for school. But on Saturdays, 5 a.m., I'd be up. I'd be ready for the cartoons. They didn't come on until like 7, but I wouldn't want to miss anything. I, I just love animation. Um, but it's interesting you bring that scene up. Um, we To really craft that, uh, I, I talked to John Batiste, who, of course, plays the, the piano, and said, describe to me a moment like this. He actually wrote, there was a previous scene that we cut out where young Joe does go to a jazz club. And I, I just asked him, tell me now as an adult, what happened there? What, what was that guy playing? And we just stole almost, I got to say, like 90% of that is what John Batiste told me. And we just wrote oh. it down, and, and that was that scene. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. Love that wow. scene. Wow. Uh, Pete, as I was watching this movie, you know, there are so many themes that just kind of, you know, hit me as, as a, as a fairly grown man. Like there are very adult ideas and themes <laughs> and plot man. points. I yes, like fairly grown, fairly grown. <laughs> I, I have a lightsaber in the other room, so I can't say okay. fairly grown. Uh, fairly grown, but there are like very adult <laughs> themes and ideas and, and plot points in this movie. Um, and I'm just sort of curious, you know, when you start developing an idea, because it's animated, how much do you have to worry about like kids understanding what your plot is? And because it's such an, uh, such an adult themed plot, do you ever get any pushback from Pixar going like, look, dude, like at the end of the day, it's still a Pixar film. Like you gotta, we gotta think of the kids somehow. Yeah. Well, we try to make films that are, you know, intelligent enough for kids, but simple enough for adults to understand as well. Um, I think kids, kids are really smart. <laughs> a lot of times, you think, oh, this is going to go. I can't tell you how many times this has happened, like an inside out for sure, that uh, adults would watch the film. We had a couple test screenings and parents would say, yeah, I don't think this is a film for my kids. They're not going to understand them. And then the kids sitting right next to them would describe the entire film, like pitch it better than I could. Like they totally get it. <laughs> kids are smart. And so, you know, I think our, our, our aim obviously is for everybody. But, um, you know, I feel like, man, I have this amazing opportunity to make films that have this broad reach. I don't want to waste that. I want to really try to push things both visually and story-wise and say something, use this opportunity to say something that I feel is important. Um, and so I hope that comes across in the film that the sort of central theme is a very personal thing. Um, just examining what is it that we're meant to be doing with our lives? You know, we are not going to be around forever. You have an opportunity no matter where you are in the world and what you were given to turn that into something really cool. Uh, Pete, I, I've been lucky enough to come to Pixar a couple of times and see the process uh, through these fantastic media days that you guys do. Um, I, as much as jazz is an art form that thrives on improvisation, animation does not seem that way. <laughs> it seems to be, as an outsider, uh, something that's very detail-driven and that there's not a lot of room for improvisation. So where does improvisation on the scale of jazz occur in the animation process? Only in a couple places. You're right, because almost everything that you see on the screen is planned. I don't know that there are very many opportunities for accidents or or goofing around. Acting, of course, is one of them. We record the voices before we animate so the the actors are free to 
you know, take things off in whatever direction uh, that they would like. And then once in a while, there are a couple examples that I can't think of right now on this film where somebody has an accident, uh, uh, they computer or something goes wrong, and you're like, oh, I didn't mean to sh show that. Hold on. And I'm like, wait, look, let's go back. That actually could work for what we're trying to do. Um, oh, well, one of them, just from a cutting point of view, Kevin Nolting, our editor, um, there's one part of the film where it's all silent except for music that takes uh, takes over. And he's after the scene played, he's like, uh, wait, I forgot to turn on the uh, sound effects and the dialogue. And I was like, no, 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 that actually worked really well. So um, once in a while it happens. <laughs> you know, Pete, uh, I was a huge fan of the way you used uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's music. Um, I, I and I mean this as the, like a, a, an incredible compliment. It reminded me almost like a Fincher vibe, only because mm. I'm so used to the way Fincher uses Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's music. Like it's a Pixar movie, but it, 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 it the, the tone of it is so incredible. As Jake was saying, I feel like it's going to hit all different types of age ranges. For me, as somebody who's dealt with anxiety and depression in my life, you know, it was night. It was incredible to see you visualize what that's like and kind of like those voices in your mind. Um, but Atticus Ross's and Trent Reznor's music really is a character in your movie. And I wanted to ask about working with them. It's, it's a very different feel uh, than like a Michael Giacchino score, for example. And I wanted to know like what you were going for is, is are, are you, were you a fan of their work in Fincher's movies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's brilliant, both musically and just just idea wise, you know what it does for the the picture. They're such smart thinkers, which is what attracted uh, us to 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 bring them to asking them to come uh, work with us, because it is, a, as you say, you know, typically what we do is we finish the film, we almost like lock it to the frame and then we give it to Michael or to, you know, whoever it is that we're working with. And uh, and we have big orchestral scores. And I love those. But this one felt like. From the beginning, it just needed some different approach. And so working with them was a different approach as well. They came in as we were writing the scenes, as we were crafting them. Oh, and they wow. would give us little, um, what did they call them? They're not studies, but they're like, they would, we'd say, uh, they, they suddenly we'd show up in the morning, like, we sent seven cues over, see if any of those work uh, for this scene. And sometimes we would actually take them out of that scene and put them over here in this other scene that they weren't planned for. And it was a very... Um, it was kind of like an organic process. A part of the movie making was was their filmmaking or their 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 score. And I think the other thing we realized um, later as we were doing mix, um, Ren Kleiss, who's doing our he did our sound design and the mix, is such a huge part of all of that as well. Their music is really immersive. So it's not just like there's music playing over there. It kind yes. of becomes part of the space. You're in the music, you know. And that's of course thanks both to to Ren and Trent Atticus. Yeah. I am so fascinated with the idea of pitching stories to Pixar because uh, you know whenever you hear some of the stories you guys have done, you go like, oh my God, that's that's brilliant. Of course. Which and you know, it, because your ideas are so good, I always picture like the ones that are rejected are ideas that other studios would still kill to do. But I am curious about what kind of idea. Oh, okay, then to that point, I, my, what what sort of ideas get? Do you guys just go? No, that doesn't work for us because like like what what is there a through line between all of the ones that have been rejected? No, really, the the thing I think that they have to have is this intangible thing that makes me go, yeah, all we're looking for is something that makes me sit forward and get and feel intrigued. And if if it's less than that, if you pitch something and you're kind of left going, hmm, well, it's kind of cute, then that's not going to cut it. You know, it's got to sustain 
everybody's interests for the four and a half or five years it takes to make these. And, um, you know, we realize we have a lot of room for building on things. I think any of the ideas um, that I've had were just little fraction snippets of concepts at the beginning. And then later, as you bring in all these amazing people, uh, it starts to really flesh out and become something that's actually worthwhile. So I think the process, our process itself, allows for a great deal of growth as well. You know, I want to ask you about a specific scene, and I won't give details um, in case people listen to this before they get a chance to see the film. Um, but there's a moment when uh, your main character sits down at a piano and plays a song, um, and it's, it ends up becoming a very uh, piece of music that's really strong and an important part of his journey. Um, I would love for you to be able to talk to me about the first time you heard the song that you were going to use, or the, the piece of music that you were going to use to, to pull out the emotions of that scene. That was a scene that was there from the very beginning in my head, and I felt like, well, not the very beginning, a long way, um, but it was a key kind of cornerstone that, you know, we kind of think of these movies a little bit like uh, building a tent where you're like, okay, there's one pole that's up and the rest of the tent's all <laughs> saggy and stuff, but you're like, oh, look, there's another one, and then we just kind of continue to prop it up, and that was one of the key tent pole moments. Um, I do still remember Trent and Atticus sent us, I think, five cues based on this scene and we're like this is a super important scene guys this is and they felt it too i think when we first pitched it actually they came up they came to pixar we screened them a rough version of the film with and story reels which i can talk about if 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 you're not familiar but so they were able to watch the whole movie essentially in in almost like comic book form and they were. Do you mind really... explaining that, by the way? Oh, I, sure. I, 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 I mean, I find that interesting. I don't mean to cut your answer, but you said that. I, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we're, that's, our, that's our show. We're really into that kind of stuff. We get very oh, technical. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, most people think of writing as typing and write, you know words, but for us, it's also drawing. So, what we'll do is we have a small crew of usually seven or so artists who do kind of a comic book version of the film. It's a couple thousand drawings usually uh, that we then photograph. Actually, nowadays they're, they're uh, digital anyway. Um, and we cut them together with music, our own dialogue that we just record ourselves and sound effects that we have in the library. And we basically try to approximate what's this movie going to be like. So before we go through the millions of dollars and hours of time that it takes to make it, we do, we do kind of a dumb, stupid version of it, um, and it allows us to sit. We even go so far as to put the little Disney castle on the hopping lamp at the beginning, so we really try to hypnotize ourselves like, okay, this is the movie. Pretend this is the movie. And then um, we are able to go up into a room um, with a bunch of other filmmakers and talk about what worked and what didn't. We just had one earlier today on a film that um, Pete Sohn is directing, um, he did a good dino. And so Pete is part of our brain trust and Andrew Stanton and all these people, other fellow filmmakers who are struggling with the same problems that we are. Uh, and, and, and also I have really brilliant suggestions. So, you know, we're then able to say, all right, great. We got all these ideas. Let's scrap that thing we just did and start again. So by the time you see it, by the time the audience sees the film, I'd say it's usually about the seventh or eighth complete version of the movie that we blew up wow um, and did again that's amazing but going back to um, what sean was saying that you brought you brought uh, you said you had five cues and yeah so the music yeah was- so so they saw one of those versions and i was super nervous because i was like okay this is really rough and for a lot of times um people aren't used to watching reels it can be like kind of a head scratcher mm-hmm. um but they watched it and they came out and they're like we're kind of blown away 
not only by uh, the story, but like the theme of it. Uh, and Trent talked about uh, himself and how personal it it uh, it felt to him. This idea that maybe someday when I finally achieve, when I can finally play a stadium show, he said, then everything's going to fall into place and I'm going to be kind of fixed. You know, I'm yeah. going to be a, a whole person. And he talked about the moment of playing the show and going backstage and realizing everybody went home, everyone's gone and I'm the same guy. Right. And not, and that was, that was of course, the whole point of telling the story. Um, so for him to really resonate with that was super promising. So when they delivered these cues, they were all beautiful, but this one particular just felt so perfect for what it was we were trying to, uh, to have the character. It's a sadness, it's a kind of a melancholy, but it's also got this real hope and optimism um, and how you do that, I don't know. Those guys are crazy uh, good, and uh, music is mysterious. Oh my God, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. That scene meant a lot to me. Yeah, we have, uh, Sean and I, yeah, that's, that's, this movie has meant so much to us. We've been discussing it for so long uh, now. And uh, well, I hard cried, thing, like ugly cry, like, like the yeah, gagging ugly cry, cry yeah, where yeah. Uh, making any like, sounds, like, like the gagging. That's <laughs> like opening 20 minutes yeah. of up cry. Like that, that's kind of where we were again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another one of your it's films. good to hear because it was also a bit of a challenge that I wanted to throw down for ourselves because most of the films, if you really step back and like analyze it, which I try not to do a lot, but you know, if you look at, most of our films, it's like, you really should just get along with this other character, right? That's the resolution. And I was like, how can we, can we do this in a way that, I mean, that ends up being an element of it, but can it talk about something more? The answer isn't just fixing a relationship, you know, mm. and still get people emotional. I don't know. I, um, that was, that was the goal. Well, that it worked for all of us. As, as I told you, it's something, you know, this was, uh, in my opinion, I've never seen a film visualize what the darkness of your mind can do to you. Uh, and then that light you're looking for. And then they, it just was so inspiring, to be honest with you, uh, just from a personal right. note. Um, one thing I find really interesting, though, is looking at the history of Pixar. I remember seeing the first Toy Story in like 95 with my grandparents in Florida. I mean, when you saw Pixar for the first time, it, it changed it changed everything from an animation perspective. And I believe your first feature was Monsters, Inc. in 2001 with Pixar. And it's 19 years ago. We're, you know, 2020 now. You're releasing another Pixar film. I'm interested to know the animation and directing changes that have occurred. Like from mm -hmm. you looking back at 2001, the way animation was done, the way you directed, what has been a similarity through the 19 years and what's been, what are things, what things have changed in your process from a filmmaking perspective? Well, I mean, as well, I was supervising animator on Toy Story and a lot of these yeah. answers might not be very interesting because they're very technical, but there were things like we couldn't. We're into that, man. All right. Trust me. There's this thing called <laughs> go, in, go. Yeah. This is old news now, but inverse kinematics. So if you imagine the root of a character is the body. Uh, I want him to appear to be standing. In order to, to do that, if he shifts his body, I have to reverse engineer the angles of the hip, knee, and ankle to get those feet to stay nailed down. We didn't have a computer solution for that when we started Toy Story. So you'll notice there's a lot of shots where they're like cut off at the knees so we don't have to show their foot contact. Um, um, we had to <laughs> hand do those scenes uh, until somebody came up with a, a tool called ICTI, which is inverse kinematic tool. And so you'd nail the feet down and you'd run this tool and you'd get the shot back and the feet would be going and you'd have to nail it down again. It was just crazy 
And I was through the whole thing going, wouldn't, shouldn't a computer be able to do this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> math, right? Sure enough, later on uh, in production, uh, kind of midway through, I guess, somebody came up with a way of making that a little bit better. Now, I don't know. I mean, oh, there were tons of things that we couldn't do back then, too. Like, um, if you remember Toy Story, Sid burns Woody's forehead with a magnifying glass and he he runs, the kid leaves and he runs and puts his head in this bowl of cereal. Yeah. That was originally boarded as a bowl of dog water, like his dog Scud, and you'd see a big splash. And that was super hard. It was impossible really to do water. <laughs> so we staged it really low and we just put some little torus shapes in there that looked like cereal. So it's implied water, but we didn't have to show it to you. Um, so there's a lot of things like that that were just really tricky back then, which now, of course, man, I don't know what those guys can't do. It, it seems like everything they is possible. Yeah, now you're doing the afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> you could you could yeah. do a dog bowl. Now you're doing. Thirty five yep. years, man. That's nuts. Um, Pete, obviously, you were one of the very first, one of the first winners of the animation Oscar category. Um, and uh, you know, and, and and so I'm sort of curious uh, your thoughts on because there there have been a lot of animated films that have come out since that category existed where I thought that if that movie won best picture, I'd be okay with it. Like I'd be perfectly mm. fine. So I'm curious to your thoughts, uh, you know, a master animator, the benefit of having that category and the benefit of that category honoring animation, but also the detriment of like, do you feel that the Oscars potentially because they have that category, they feel they could, because an animated film's never won best picture before. Will we ever see an animated film win best picture? This year, this year. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, Soul would be a great, start if we could do that <laughs> to be honest with you i will i won't say no but uh <laughs> I, I i do think there is um a kind of a perception in most amongst most filmmakers that animation is kind of a, a breed apart um and i think people most people that we've worked with like roger deakins or or um and other folks that are you know involved uh, heavily in live action they come in and they're like hey this is the same it's the same thing. It's just you're doing it in a little invisible box instead of real life with actors. But so much of the craft is the same. You know, the people who put the lighting together, the costuming, all of those decisions, the, the creative decision making is the same. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I like to think if if there was a little bit more crossover that people kind of went back and forth, that there might that might broaden people's minds. Um I don't know. I mean, I think we've done it to ourselves, too. You know, look, most of animation is not super intellectual. It's like fart jokes and pants dropping and things like that. And nothing <laughs> wrong with that. I love that. Uh, but Me that's too, not man. typically typically what wins the best picture. It's not a lot of fart jokes. Um, so, uh, hey, you know, I, think I still think Dumb and Dumber should have won an Academy Award. <laughs> there you I, go. I, 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 Jeff Daniels in that toilet scene. Yeah, he makes this argument a lot on the show, honestly. <laughs> His comedy doesn't get the representation it deserves. It's brilliant. That is true. And comedy is hard. Yeah. It's super hard. It's really hard. But uh, um, yeah, so I was just going to say, I think it's kind of up to us to, to up our game. So Pete, one of the elements that uh, that uh, we've retained uh, from watching the movie around my house is Quiet Coyote. It is so effective. 
Uh, anytime that my kids are getting my face, I'm just like a quiet coyote. <laughs> and it's so strange to them. Well, Sean's wife is doing it to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I got you for the press junket, I was able to, uh, you confirmed that you guys used the, the sound of the bug zapper. And you talked about the fact that you got pushback for that. And then as we were running out of time, I, I mentioned that I didn't think John Ratzenberg was, um, was featured in this uh, film. And you said he was. And I won't ask you to tell me who he voices because you were being coy, but can you give me a, a, another hint as I continue to go through and find out where he is? You can straight up tell me because I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like, I, like, okay, I, 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 there's no nothing holding me back from telling you, but I'm also kind of wanting to just see if the regular viewers will, will catch Is up. it obvious? Or am I just missing it? I like to think it's obvious, but not in the way you're expecting. Okay. That, all right, that's fine. That's the next hint that I will take. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, Pete, uh, people, end on the. I will end on this because obviously uh, there's been a lot of news recently with theatrical and streaming, and there's a lot going on uh, in the world of the the future of cinema. I've seen every Pixar film that uh, up to date through in in cinema, uh, mm. and and it's and it's always been a great experience to see it with people. And and honestly, watching Soul at Home. The emotion and everything still hit me exactly how uh, I, I felt in theaters seeing the other Pixar films. Um, but you know, I obviously miss being around people, and I just wonder for you uh, what your thoughts on the future of theatrical. And I mean, I, I know because Disney has always been so great about putting their movies in theaters, and, uh, and and I know they always have been. So I'm wondering what your thoughts were on just on the future of theatrical and you know streaming as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. My heart breaks a little bit to think that out of 23 films, you know, this is one that's not going to be released in, in theaters, there is something about that communal experience and uh, the immersiveness of it and the fact that you're not going to be like answering the phone at the same time and, um, you know, preparing dinner. But on the other hand, I mean, at this point in time, I think we're so fortunate to have Disney Plus. There's no yes. way people would be able to see this movie at all otherwise. So, you know, it's incredible. And as a fan, I think, as we talked about, I fell in love with animation as a kid in the house, not going to the theater necessarily, although maybe it, it's somehow instilled in my head that way as well. So, you know, it's um, most tragic probably at this point is the fact that we have not been able to show the very crew that made the film oh, our own film. Yeah. You know, we tried to get them into the theater, into the studio at, at work, but we're, you know, we're not allowed to return to work right now. We tried, we even tried to set up um, drive-in theaters and that got shut down what, like two weeks ago. So um, everybody's going to see it the same way. Well, I'll tell you, right from the get-go, there's a gimmick that you guys do with the Disney theme song that I won't give away. It's so <laughs> out of tune. It's the best. That that gets people's attention that they will not be checking their phone. or they, it, it tells you this is different. Pay attention. You're in for something special. That's one of the most immersive girlfriend. openings I've ever seen. Like, I, I looked over at my wife and I'm like, wait a second. Is our TV messed up? What's going on here? I told my girlfriend that I had the screener for this movie and she's like, oh my God, like, please don't watch it without me. Like, wait for it. And I, and I was like, you know, okay, fine. And naturally I just pressed play and watched it and i told you i was i was uh, i was just just crying watching it and she calls me and i go like hey and she goes 
you are watching it, aren't you? I was like, I'm sorry, I got had to. Uh, for one word. <laughs> well, Pete, we uh, honestly thank you so much for your time. And it's oh, such thank a pleasure you. to have you on the show. Again. We hope you enjoyed yourself. And um, yeah. hopefully we'll get you back when you have, uh, have more time to, to go in-depth into, into your films. And, and all the things you just announced at the at the Investors uh, Yeah, the Up Hall series. That, yeah. 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 And Buzz Lightyear yeah. or the Return of Lightyear and all this amazing stuff. So it's, you guys are going to be really busy for years to come. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks. I'm really, really pleased you enjoyed the film. It really means a lot. And thanks for all the technical stuff. We like nerding out with you. We appreciate that. Anytime. Naturally, we want to thank Disney for letting Pete Doctor come on the show. Check out Soul. It is on Disney+. Plus. We will be back with a brand new episode of Real Blend. On the next episode, we're going to be doing our top 10 films of 2020. So you will not want to miss this. We will see you guys back here next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.